Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Professor Jesse Ricketts is based in the Department of Psychology, Royal Holloway, University of London, and directs the Language and Reading Acquisition Research Group. Jesse researches language and literacy in children, young people, and adults. She's particularly interested in how reading benefits children's learning and language. For example, how does learning to read change the way that we process language? Should we emphasize written forms when teaching children new words? How can we support teens to read more so that they can expand their vocabulary knowledge? Jesse works closely with teachers, educational charities, policymakers to consider research and its implications for education. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Cathy, for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you, I think, about all things vocabulary and reading. Well, if our audience doesn't mind, because I've got teenagers, I'm actually going to start with them. Okay. <laughs> and we know that, you know, some I've often heard from lots of parents that's especially in the age of digital media and screens that perhaps our teenagers don't really feel that motivated to read anymore. In fact, I think we now know that about 43% of UK children in the sort of younger ages, 9 to 11, only read every day outside of school. So what can we do about that motivation and, and how is that sort of lack of reading potentially impacting on reading development? Yeah, so there's loads to think about there, I think. And, and adolescence is a really important period to be focusing on in relation to reading vocabulary. I think partly because there is a kind of increased expectation that our young people will be able to read independently and will read independently in their leisure time as well as for school, and that they will learn through that reading. So it's really important that we know more about what's happening, I think. And I started thinking about this. So I've done quite a lot of work on adolescent reading now over the last decade. And I started thinking about this because I was working in quite a few, about 50 secondary schools and working with children that had speech, language and communication needs and autism. But one of the things that kept coming up was just that secondary schools felt that they had a lot of young people who didn't really have the knowledge and skills that they needed to do the reading that they needed to do for the curriculum. And they didn't really know what to do about it. They didn't feel like they had the right kind of resources or the right training. And actually, when I went back to look at the literature, I could understand why, because really, there was so little research looking at what's happening in that period. And there was an underlying assumption that when we're thinking about reading, actually development kind of finishes at the end of primary school. And that seemed to pervade the theory and the research and also the practice. So this is why I started looking at uh, reading in secondary. And we found out quite a lot of really interesting things, which I think are useful for parents to know. So what we've been focusing on really is trying to work out what the differences are. So what the variation in reading abilities and and also reading behaviours, so how much young people are reading and, and motivations, but particularly reading proficiency is what we've been looking at. 
and how very varied that is in adolescence. And actually what we've seen is that the, the differences between those who are kind of achieving less well and those who are achieving most well in reading are astonishing actually. And the first thing that comes to mind when I think about that really is that that must be an enormous challenge for any teacher in a secondary classroom because they're kind of faced with this enormous range in front of them. And of course, that's a challenge at home as well, because, you know, what do we do about that? And the second thing that we wanted to find out in our research was, okay, well, well, what's changing in development? What can we say about development? Because that's really important for trying to tell us what we could do or what we could do differently. And what we found in development is that actually young people in adolescence and at secondary school are making some gains, some progress in their reading. It's not as marked as we might see in primary school. And that makes a lot of sense because things have settled down a bit. But they are making the kinds of gains that, you know, if things go well, could be functionally really important for them when they come out of school to fill in forms or apply for courses or jobs or, or whatever they might need to use their reading skills for. And in this longitudinal work, we've been not only looking at how reading develops over time, but also what the drivers are of that development. And one of the things that we found is really important is vocabulary knowledge. And vocabulary is really important for reading for, for a few reasons, some of which are, are kind of quite obvious if you think about it. So, of course, if we're trying to read a particular text, we might need to understand all of the words in that text to fully, fully understand it. Um, so vocabulary knowledge is going to be really important for reading comprehension. It's also really important for word reading as well, because if we know a word that we haven't seen before in our spoken vocabulary, then we're more likely to get at the right pronunciation or get at the meaning of that word when we're reading it too. So it's also important for the, the reading of individual words. So vocabulary is really important. And indeed, once you can read, your reading ability and reading knowledge feeds back into your vocabulary because you then encounter more words while you're reading. And, and actually, the words that we encounter while we're reading are quite different from the words that we encounter in everyday spoken language. And that's important. It's what we kind of refer to as book language. So if we are avid readers and if we are reading a lot in our leisure time, we're being exposed to a load of words that we wouldn't otherwise encounter. And so that's really important for growing our vocabulary knowledge. So I think this just reinforces the sense, which I'm sure many parents have, that the reading that their young people do is really important and helps them to grow their vocabulary. So how do we get young people to read more? Well, we've been doing quite a few different things in that space. We've been looking at motivation a little bit more in the context of primary kids, but I think the same principles may well be applicable to older adolescents young people. And there in the Love to Read project, we've been looking at a set of six principles around reading motivation. So things like having access to books, having a choice of books, so kind of autonomy is really important in adolescence. And that comes in there, having some choice, having some time and space to read, those things are really important. So I guess to the extent that we as parents, I also have children and I have one who's at secondary school, and the extent to which we as parents can provide that access and choice and space and things is, is really important. And the evidence does. And that does sound like access to libraries, literally going to the library, modelling a joy of books, you're just mulling, you're hanging around the, the bookshop, you know, just it's not always about sort of putting a book in their hand. It's also about the sort of modelling sort of behaviour we want to see, really. That's absolutely right. And we've taken that a step further in, in secondary schools. And we, we actually have just run a, a large experimental study to see if we could use text messaging and keeping a diary as a way of encouraging adolescents to read a bit more. 
And we had some success. I mean, we, we made a set of books published by Oxford University Press available to students in school and they could choose between four different books and they did borrow the books and they did do some reading. We're not convinced that the particular approach we used is the best approach for getting them to read more. That is that we asked them to fill in a diary to say what they were reading and how much they were reading. And actually those who filled in the diary and the control group who didn't fill in the diary did about the same amount of reading. And the really important message I think that comes out of that, which is coming out of a lot of my work at the moment, is that it's important that we look at the evidence that's around when we're designing approaches for young people. And indeed, we looked at the behavior change literature around healthy eating when we designed that particular intervention. And in the healthy eating sphere, completing a diary and setting goals and this kind of text messaging approach has been really effective. And so we thought, okay, well, maybe reading behavior is a bit like eating behavior. And so we'll see if it works in this context. And actually, we didn't see big gains. And our strong hypothesis is that what we need to do in future is work much more with the young people themselves to find out how that kind of strategy could work or indeed whether there's another strategy that would work better so that's the kind of future the future of that project which I think is really exciting because that kind of work is not there's not enough of that kind of collaborative work going on so that's one that there might be things that we can do at scale by making books available and, and encouraging young people in some way to read books that might be effective but so far there isn't enough evidence to say exactly what we should be doing and of course schools are doing all sorts of wonderful things already which they know to be effective so it's about also collaborating which we did do for this project and we do always do collaborating really closely with schools and teachers to do this work. And I'm also, you've made me think about back to that point about disparity in the classroom between the more able readers and those that might be struggling. And I was just thinking about how, you know, is there any room or do you know anything about sort of peer motivation? You know, is there any sort of evidence that, you know, young people themselves, you know, they've got lots of clubs in schools for different things, but is there any sort of mechanism within that sort of peer relationship that we could kind of harness as educators to sort of get them interested in books a little bit more interested in reading? I think that's a really interesting idea, actually. And I think it kind of resonates with this idea that maybe if we want to find effective approaches for encouraging young people to read, we need to spend a bit more time talking to them about what they think is going to work. And again, I think that would be the approach that I would take here. I would try and talk to young people and their peers about what kind of structures are around and what they think would motivate them. I mean, what we do know is that peer relationships are fantastically important in determining what young people do and do not do. And we know that from work by people like Sarah Jane Blakemore, that actually we need to take notice of the importance of peer relationships in adolescence because they're incredibly powerful. So I think that's a really, really, that's a, a kind of approach that has a lot of potential. I'm not sure that there's any evidence out there at the moment. And actually, be interesting to know whether schools are harnessing those relationships in that way. And that would be a really good starting point as well, I think. It's making me, because a lot of the literature on things, if we're trying to sort of adjust or change behavior, for example, if we're talking to young people about sexting, you know, mm. telling them to do something or not to do something generally won't work. Mm. But we do know that weighing things up, having little project work, getting them to present back about the importance of sleep, for example, the importance, the parallel would be the importance of reading, mm. I think is a very interesting transferability you know in terms of those different areas in terms of how they think how we can use as you say that sort of peer connection to be a sort of a fruitful mechanism for motivating them definitely i think there is another piece of the picture that sometimes gets forgotten here though which is that 
When I think about reading, I, I often take quite a broad definition of reading, and then sometimes I take a more narrow definition. It depends a bit on what I'm doing. But if you take a broader definition, you're talking about knowledge and skills that underpin reading. You're also talking about reading behaviours, so how much you read, what you're reading, and then also affective things to do with reading. So how you feel about reading, how you feel about yourself as a reader, and so on, how much you enjoy reading. And I think when we think about all of these things together, it's really important to remember that actually the ability to access the text has to come first. There can be no reading if you can't read. So if you are faced with a text where the challenge is beyond your knowledge and skills, then there can be no reading. And I think sometimes in the secondary context that can get a little bit lost just because there is this assumption that knowledge and skills are kind of sorted by the end of primary. And what we know from the research is that that's not really the case, actually. There's quite a lot of kids who enter into secondary school who really do not have anything like the knowledge and skills that they need to access the curriculum or to read the kinds of texts that are considered to be age appropriate or curriculum level appropriate for them. So, of course, what we want to do is we want to encourage this wonderful virtuous circle between, you know, reading lots and reading really interesting things and getting better at reading and learning a lot. And we want to kind of get that feeding into each other. But I think sometimes what we have to remember is that you have to have the kind of minimum level of knowledge and skills that's required to enter into that virtuous circle. And what we do know is that there's quite a lot of young people. Depends a bit on how you define it, but normally talk about kind of 15 to 20% of young people are really nowhere near that kind of level. And so we need to have this balanced approach to making sure that we're encouraging young people to get what they can out of reading and enjoy reading and do more reading, but we also need to be working with those who are struggling with reading to make sure that they can kind of access the text. And, you know, your your point, which is a great one, raises the issue of screening, presumably at the point of entry to secondary school. In order to help the teacher and the learner, there should be some sort of, I'm sure there is, I'm, I'm not knowledgeable about this area at all, but some sort of screening whereby the teacher is able to differentiate quite effectively and recognize where children do need support with reading. Absolutely. So so secondary schools are armed with SATS results, but the challenge there is that actually so much more goes into doing well in the English SATS than just reading ability, as has been kind of widely documented. And so what a lot of schools are starting to do is to use an assessment on entry to secondary school just to kind of get at the underpinning knowledge and skills around reading. And I'm seeing this increasingly. It was quite unusual 10 years ago, whereas now there's a lot more schools that are doing it. A lot of schools use, for example, the new group reading test, which is published by GL assessment. And the benefit of that assessment is that it can be done in groups on a computer. So it's quite feasible. It's not cheap, but it's quite feasible for schools to do it at scale. And it does give them quite useful information, I think, about where children are with their reading and what therefore if they if they need additional support. But it's not perfect. And I think one of the issues with an assessment like that is that when you've got children sitting down and doing an assessment on a computer, if they don't do well, it might be that that's because They have challenges with reading or reading needs, but it might also be that they weren't paying attention because you haven't got someone there kind of monitoring what they're doing. It might also be a kind of engagement issue. And that's tricky because what therefore can happen is that you can identify young people as having reading needs when really they don't have those needs. And some of the interventions and support for these children are quite expensive in terms of time and resources. And so, of course, there's an issue around wanting to make sure that precious time and resources is allocated in an appropriate way. And this is an issue that they were concerned about in Blackpool. And so I got involved in a project with all of the secondary schools in Blackpool. And we've been working on a kind of 
a process of building on something like that kind of screening assessment to, to kind of verify that a child has a reading need and also specify what that reading need is so that it can be aligned with the right kind of support. What I mean there is it might be that, that this young person still finds it quite tricky to read words, but it might be that actually reading words is fine. It's more about comprehension. That's more where their challenge lies with reading. And what you would do then to support children in those two different groups is very, very different. So it's actually really important to know what kind of reading needs they have, as well as whether they have a reading need. So I've been doing this a lot of work with Blackpool schools, and we've published that work too, just kind of providing schools with a decision tree that they can use. So a set of questions they can ask to try and make sure that they make good decisions about which children have reading needs and what then to do about them. Well, that sounds like an incredibly valuable tool. And I know anyone listening who works in a school will be wanting me to ask where teachers could access that or how they could get it to use in their setting. Yeah, so it's um, submitted to a journal at the moment. So we'll be published in a journal, but I actually published it as a preprint. So one of the things that we're starting to do in research is to, to publish things anyway before they've been peer reviewed just to make them open access and I, I guess it's partly so that people can use all of the research that we do and use it quickly and so I did that for this paper because I wondered whether people might find it useful so if you just google Ricketts decision tree reading preprint it does come up but if anybody has any difficulty accessing it they're very welcome to email me I'll also actually you've made me think I'll, I'll put something prominent on my website to direct people to it so I'll do that as well and just to be crystal clear about that I'm sure it's clear from the, the paper itself what is the age range that that is appropriate for well it was designed collaboratively with the schools that I was working with in Blackpool so it was designed for the secondary context but there's no reason why it's not applicable to the primary context okay it's actually a culmination of work that I've been doing over about the last 10 to 15 years with schools working with them to try and support them where it's useful to them to be able to use some of the assessments that we use in research to identify need amongst their pupils. So it's just really supplementing some of the a lot of the information they already have, but trying to hone in very specifically on aspects of reading, for example. So it's absolutely appropriate for the primary setting too. And there is going to be some follow-on work thinking about whether there's any adjustments that need to be made. Sounds brilliant. And presumably, how do we sort of separate out, I hope this isn't a stupid question, but how do we separate out sort of reading problems and issues, you know, with, you know, there might be particular conditions that a child has, or they might be neurodiverse, or they might have dyslexia, or there might be particular issues that affect the reading beyond those sort of reading struggles, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that's re a really interesting question. I think What's important there is to remember that there's a number of reasons why children might have reading needs. The usual suspect really is spoken language. So most children who have reading needs have some broader challenges around language generally in the spoken as well as the written domain. And so as soon as a child is identified with a reading need, you would be wanting to think about, well, is this something broader to do with language? I think my view on that would be that in, in a way, what we need to be, so diagnostic categories can be really useful. They can be particularly useful, I think, for parents and for schools in getting additional support for children and young people. So they're fantastically important. Of course, we know that sometimes there can be some stigmas associated with them as well. And, you know, that can be challenging. 
But I think what's really important for something like this is to make sure that you take a needs-based approach when you're thinking about what's going on. So not just assuming because a child has autism spectrum disorders, for example, and issues to do with reading are reasonably common in that group, not therefore assuming that any child in that category will have those needs because they may not. So I think my take on it would be that if you are, I guess the, the diagnostic category and the needs might be to some extent separate and you might need to think about them separately. Though, of course, the kind of support that you put in place might have to be tailored a bit if a child has additional other complex needs as well. And this is where, you know, relationship with families is so important, getting lots mm. of holistic information. And I really like that idea of sort of starting where the needs are. And I also, in that sort of emphasis that you've placed on oracy and the acquisition of vocabulary, surely speech and language therapy or therapists have so much to contribute to this kind of area. Absolutely. I mean, I've tended to focus on the interface between vocabulary and reading. And that's not to say that other aspects of spoken language like grammar or being able to process sounds or pragmatics, indeed, are not really important. They are really important generally, and they're also really important for reading. I think I've focused on vocabulary because it is a building brick for reading, I would say, but also it's a reasonably, and I think this is why schools often focus on vocabulary as opposed to other aspects of language too. It's reasonably good, well kind of defined space to be working in, I think, sometimes. So I've tended to focus on, on vocabulary, but you're absolutely right. Oracy is really important. And I think speech and language, I always work closely with speech and language therapists in the research that I do and make sure I get their voices, their voices are heard within the research, as well as teachers, because they have a slightly different way of thinking about it and a different approach. I guess one of the really strong messages, well, there's a couple of really strong messages coming from that field. And one is that these challenges to do with speech, language and communication and to do with literacy are not easy to shift. And I think that's really important to remember that quick fixes are probably not going to work here. And probably what we're hoping for is what might feel like quite small changes as a result of very sustained support. And so I think that's really important for parents and for schools in terms of managing expectations around what you're hoping to achieve with a particular intervention. Another message that I think is really important that's kind of is very much linked to speech and language therapy is an idea around early intervention. So we do have a sense, I think, in which we just tend to think that early intervention has just always got to be the be all and end all in it. And it's the only thing that's important. There's a bit of a tendency to, to think that. And of course, it's fantastically important. We know that children come into school with really incredibly variable language profiles. You know, when you compare those who have the know the fewest words to those who know the most words, you know, that's we're not talking about gaps here, we're talking about chasms. I mean it's huge. However, Early intervention is not the complete answer because some of the challenges that children have arise later. So, of course, what happens as, as children and young people get older is that the expectations and demands of the language environment or the reading environment or the writing environment, literacy environment that they encounter at school or at home, they change. And so you can find that some children are kind of doing OK, doing OK, doing OK, just about keeping up. And then the challenge really shifts perhaps as a result of moving from primary to secondary school, for example, and that's when students really start to struggle. And so we need to keep an eye. We can't just assume that early intervention, if it works, 
is the full answer. We need to keep an eye on, on children as they move through the whole system, I think. Yeah, I really I love your sort of messaging around there's a tendency to sort of just as soon as they move from primary school, it's like they're going to be independent learners and we should sort of sustain that same curiosity about how they're getting on and monitoring it, even as parents, through that those secondary school years as well. Absolutely. In terms of what you said about the acquisition of vocabulary and when things change, so one of the things I've always been interested in, for example, if there's a comprehension that comes up about being at the seaside, you know, and some children have never been to the sea, you know, and they're reading something that is contextually foreign to them, that can be Mm. really, you know, that sort of gap in knowledge or experience can really affect, I think, children's progression. I think that's really important, actually. And I think we we do know that, uh, so when we tend to think about reading, we often fall back on a kind of framework like the simple view of reading, which basically says that to be a successful reader, you need to be able to read words. That's clearly the case. And you also need to be able to understand language. And that's also really important. Those two things, if you don't have both of those things, you cannot be a successful reader. And I think that's really important. But Another thing that is really important and feeds into both of those things, in fact, is background knowledge. You know, it's not just about having these generalized, this generalized knowledge and skills. You need to have the specific, sometimes you very much need to have the specific knowledge of that particular context to be able to read something. Again, with the Blackpool schools, we did some really interesting work around that because they, and a lot of other schools do this too, they have a kind of literary canon. And the purpose of that literary canon is is quite complex. So they hope to promote the amount the kids are reading, they hope to improve knowledge and skills, they also hope to to kind of do, I think one of their goals is to do something about social capital and building some of this background knowledge. And what they do is they have a set group of books that they work through in the secondary context. And they try and negotiate the differences amongst children in their lived experience, and therefore the knowledge they have and the vocabulary knowledge that they have by doing a lot of work before the book is introduced. So doing a lot of work with the book to identify, it could be a historical context or it could be a particular set of vocabulary items that children may not know or some children may not know. And they work with the teachers to make sure teachers are well kind of tooled up to kind of work around that. And then before the book is introduced, there's quite a lot of work around this background knowledge to make sure that it's doing something about levelling that playing field. Because you're right. I mean, that kind of what you bring. I tend to think about reading as a kind of meeting of of the challenge that the text brings to a child and then the knowledge and skills that the child or young person brings to that text. And so you very much do need to take that into account. Yeah. And what the differences might be. Absolutely. Sorry, I'm digressing, but I, recently my children had the experience of canoeing through a mangrove and then wow. the mangrove came up in my son's comprehension. I thought, well, it's a lot easier to write about a mangrove or understand that text if you've actually been in one. And then I yeah. was thinking about the sort of disparity of experience. And Absolutely. And that's one of the things I was slightly hinting at when I was saying that a lot more goes into doing well in the SATs at the end of primary school and GCSEs, in fact, as well, than just being able to, to read and write. And there's a lot of narrative around quite how unfair sometimes the vocabulary demands of those assessments are and how they disproportionately disadvantage some groups of children. And I think there are some fascinating and interesting applications of things like virtual reality to bring experiences to children, you know, who may not have ever 
experience being in a jungle or something like that. And then I love your idea of connecting them to that topic ahead of reading the book. So I think there's there's lots to think about there. Oh, that VR idea is a great one. I've just written that down on my notepad because we actually have a, a really cool VR lab here in the department. So I will get in touch with my now, That is that. amazing. That would be an amazing study to do. They did have, I went to see the Alice in Wonderland. I'm not sure if you saw it exhibition at the VNA whenever it was on a while ago and they had a whole VR kind of immersive experience in that and I did just think wow I mean it just can get you straight into those characters and yeah really wonderful exactly and I was recently what was I doing I was looking at virtual access to museums all over the world and some of them are absolutely amazing you know, they really are vivid experiences and just sort of flagging those to parents, you know, who may not be able to get to sort of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Yeah, well, quite. I mean, well, that's most parents, right? Especially in the current circumstances. I think one of the things that the pandemic has maybe taught us, I mean, of course, there's, it's been an incredibly challenging time for all of us, I would say. But I think there is a kind of, it has raised questions about accessibility, that are quite interesting and it did generate a need within technology for making things accessible if you couldn't travel for example or couldn't be somewhere in person that I think is probably going to play out in really interesting ways going forward. And just to return to we've talked about sort of secondary school years and adolescence Mm. I just want to talk a little bit about those early years and I love your point about early intervention early earlier but I wanted to talk about sort of if you are parenting a young child and you're listening to this, that again, I'm interested in sort of the acquisition of vocabulary. We know intuitively, I think, as parents that talking to our children a lot and using interesting words and collecting words, all of that can be very interesting. But didn't you do some work around sort of first word books? Yeah, I mean, that's very much ongoing at the moment. It's really exciting work. I think the idea behind that work, so this is in collaboration with Jean Chinsky and Amber Mohinye in my department. And Jean is someone who works a lot with preschoolers and with infants. And I have this background in reading and looking at how children learn vocabulary through the process of reading. And so we kind of got together and set up this project called the Baby Books Project. And what we're doing is we give very young children, so they're kind of about a year old, books that look like the first words books that are often sold in in bookshops and and lots of children have access to. You know, the kind of book where you have a picture of a ball and it says ball, for example, that kind of book. And what we were interested in is whether those, I guess the, the assumption and sometimes the marketing materials even very explicitly say that young children will learn from these books, that they are educational. And we were interested to know whether whether they are actually educational and whether children, very young children do learn from these first word books, and if so, what impacts on that learning. And specifically, the new thing about this project was to look at tactile features or kind of touch and feel features. And I don't know whether you've encountered the kind of that's not my books. Oh, I love those books. So I do I. just brought out, I was telling my husband the other day, they've just brought out that's not my sloth. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Amazing. So yes, I mean, and I read these to my children as well. And what's lovely about those books is that they've got this lovely rhythm, but also they've got these touchy feeling patches on them. But what we were interested in was, okay, well, is it possible, given what we know about very young development, 
uh, that those touch and feel patches actually detract from any learning that might go on because they're a bit distracting. And we've run a kind of preliminary study looking at this. And so far, the evidence seems to suggest that, yes, actually children are more likely to learn a new word in the absence of those touch and feel patches. However, of course, there's a massive caveat to this, which is that the importance of those books doesn't stop with learning. They're about so much more than that. It's about having a shared bit of interest, about shared reading and all the enjoyment and excitement and engagement that that shared process between an adult and a child brings with it. So, you know, in terms of the learning, it does look like those touch and feel patches might detract But in terms of engagement, they might be really important. And in the new bigger study that's running at the moment, we're looking at engagement as well as learning. And so you'll have to watch this space for that. But it's all looking really promising at the moment. Um, In that larger study, what we're doing is we've created our own books and there's a version that's touch and feel and a version that's not. And we send home a copy of the book with families and they have it for six weeks. And so they can do lots of reading in that time. And there's a diary that they're filling in and so on. And it will be really interesting to see what the effects are in this very kind of naturalistic study that we hope mimics the kind of reading experiences that children have uh, in the real world, as opposed to kind of what we might do in carefully controlled situations in in the lab or in the research environment. So it'll be really exciting to see what we find. But so far, we already know that parents are finding it really useful to have the diary that we've given them and the books that we've given them to set up reading habits and kind of practices that maybe they didn't have before. So it's kind of interesting that the process of doing this research may have an impact on those families in terms of what they do, as well as in terms of the specific learning outcomes that we're going to be looking at. Absolutely. I've always been incredibly struck by how if parents are just given a little bit of scaffolding, a little bit of a few nudges that are evidence-based, they can really make such a tremendous difference between that sort of interaction between parent and child and the quality of output that they are able to deliver in terms of reading or any activity. I think that's really important. And it kind of comes back to your point about lived experience as well, because I think parents, of course, vary in terms of how much engagement they've had with books and how confident they feel about reading and how confident they feel as a reader and the kind of knowledge and skills that they bring. And that it can be quite challenging for parents, I think. Well, we know from talking to parents, it can be quite challenging because they know that these reading um, activities might be really beneficial or almost certainly will be really beneficial for their children in in some ways, but they may not feel very confident about engaging in those or they may not feel confident about going to the library. Or And so you're right. I think just making sure that there's some support for parents in that situation that works with them rather than at them, importantly, I would say, can be really beneficial. And we have, I've got some colleagues at the University of Reading who have been doing some really fascinating work around this and very much collaborating with parents to try and support them. And we've been doing, in collaboration with UCL, we've been doing some work around phonics as slightly older kids now, but just kind of trying to work with the parents of, of children in, in reception or year one who are wanting to support their child in, in the very early stages of learning to read and with phonics, but not having learned using phonics perhaps themselves and not really understanding. Actually, phonics is quite difficult. Teachers find phonics quite difficult to teach when they're getting used to it. And so we've been working with parents and home learning groups to see if there are things that we can do with parents to give them that confidence and that bit of knowledge that they need to do what they want to do to support their child. So that's another really interesting thing that's come. So it's, I think what's coming out of my research is a really common theme is that it, just how important it is 
when we do any research to make sure that we work with young people and children, we work with parents and families, we work with teachers and, and other people who are interested in our work and might benefit from our work to make sure that it, that we are kind of going down the right track, that we're finding out the things that they need to know and that we're also taking their voices into account when we think about strategies and resources and, and the research that we do. And uh, a common question I'm always asked is about sort of parents can sort of feel that they're rushing through reading, certainly in early years or primary school. You know, there's different, you know, you're moving, children love to move to level two or move Mm. to level three. And I was just kind of interested in whether you think that's kind of a good idea that books are kind of listed in that way, which is obvious why it's important from the practitioner's perspective. But, you know, children can be quite competitive about getting through to the gold book and and I was just wondering, could that undermine other children's confidence, you know, or interest in reading? I think it's really tricky. I think it's so tricky. And partly what makes it so tricky is the variation that you see amongst children in terms of what they can read at any age. Once they get off the ground at the very beginning of school, but even at school entry, some children can basically read and some children can't at all. And so that's really tricky because as a school, as a teacher, you need to somehow provide resources for reading for a very wide range of children, even at four, there's a big range. And so trying to get that right is really tricky. And I think that's where the level books come in, because they are a way of managing that challenge, I think. So I can see why schools use them. I think there are a lot of difficulties around leveled books. I've done a bit of work with Oxford University Press, actually, about their schemes, which are, I think, probably some of the most used in schools here anyway. And I mean, just defining what is a level X versus a level Y can already be quite difficult and not entirely clear, I think. So I think actually there are a lot of challenges around that. And you're right that children can very quickly categorize themselves as not being good readers. And I think that is something that happens a lot in our schools. I mean, that I think young children do know whether they're a good reader or not. And So, I mean, the question might be around, given that they are going to know that, how do we support them to see that that's not, how do we not overvalue that, if you like? How do we make sure that they don't feel that that, you know, that that doesn't affect their entire self-concept to do with education and doesn't kind of put them off? And some of that is around making sure that we've got different kinds of books that they can look at that are of different challenge. And I think it's especially when you kind of fast forward a little bit up the school system, it's about making sure that books that are a little bit easier to access do not seem babyish for children. They don't, making sure that you get that balance right between challenge and age appropriate kind of topics and content in other ways. And I'm not sure there's an easy solution, but I think as long as we're keeping our eye on it, I think that's probably the most important thing. And I think the way that books are leveled has changed dramatically and is much more systematic now than it used to be. But equally as parents, I mean, I've certainly been guilty of this many, many years ago when I had a toddler because I didn't know anything about this area. But rushing them, you want them, you feel like you need to get to the end of the book and you want them to remember the, the word that you used yesterday. And I think they can feel very rushed. But, you know, now if I had a toddler, I'd be taking my time. I'd be enjoying the story, pausing, talking about the characters. I wouldn't be in that sort of race to the end. Yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, perhaps it's a matter of making sure that we raise awareness around that and and try and encourage people to reflect on whether 
the goal should be about getting through that book as quickly as possible or, you know, just trying to uh, adjust the goals that people have around their reading. And, and perhaps that's a conversation that schools could have more with parents. Actually, you're, you're right that a lot of the kind of incentives that happen at school around reading for, I'm thinking particularly of primary school, it's all about how many books you've read, how many pages you've read, where you've got to. And so maybe it would be about changing that narrative, changing that conversation so that the goals are, are different. They could be around vocabulary and learning. It could be around learning a new word from a book, or it could be around reading about things that are not part of your lived experience to come back to that idea, reading about new cultures or different kinds of people. So I guess one answer could be to change that kind of narrative so that parents don't feel like the only goal here is to try and get through those books as quickly as possible. I think that's really important because ultimately what we want is for kids to be reading in a way that that shows them that reading is enjoyable and that it opens you up to all these new wonderful worlds and it really does all this stuff for you. And that's what we want them to get really, isn't it? So that they then become see themselves as readers and become readers. And also differentiating between the role of the parent and the role of the educator because the parents can stop, pause, have a cuddle, chat about yeah. stuff related to the book, go off piste, talk about something else, you know, so I think giving parents kind of permission to do that is also very important as well. And some of the leveled books do have really helpful questions at the back. Do, I mean, yeah. whether or not parents get to those and see those as a priority, I, I don't know. That's an interesting question, maybe. I guess the other thing that I'd be conscious of in, in that conversation, though, is be, being a little bit careful around what is expected of parents, because we know that, I mean, I guess we don't want to inadvertently create a whole too much inequality around that because not all parents have a lot of time to spend doing these kinds of activities. So again, there's a kind of balancing act maybe to be had there and, and also not making parents feel bad if they can't do X, Y and Z every day with their child and spend, you know, 45 minutes with each of their four different children every day reading from the different books. So I don't know whether sometimes I, I certainly have felt quite challenged by the expectations on me in that regard sometimes. And obviously, I think the reading is really important. But Absolutely. Well, I remember asking his sibling, my youngest sibling, to do a little bit of reading with them and realized that was working a treat you know mm. while I was doing the dinner and then I started That's a great idea into that and it seemed to be not obviously not all the time but I think there's something about that sibling relationship that can work really well you know in terms yeah. of educating them and that has its roots in that kind of slightly more knowledgeable other has its roots even in I was teaching undergraduates last week about Vygotsky I don't know whether you know much about Vygotsky, yes. but and his approach to kind of learning it very much being this social exchange. And often he talked about the zone of proximal development. So the idea that you might have a more knowledgeable other who's working with you to help you reach your potential and do things that you wouldn't be able to do on your own. And so, you know, that kind of idea comes right back, doesn't it, from theorizing from the beginning of, of the 20th century. And also the beautiful impact it can have on the older sibling's self-esteem. Everybody wants to be the teacher, don't they? Yeah, it's only when you teach something that you sometimes realise, oh, I actually know that. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's very validating, isn't it? Yeah, I imagine that was lovely. I haven't thought to do that with mine. That's a really nice idea. Perhaps I should. Uh, and the other thing, it gives you a little window into uh, how they're taught. So they start echoing what their teacher might say to them. And that's really interesting, you know, because parents can sort of get some inspiration even from listening to that dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. 
So Jesse, a couple of last questions for you that have actually been submitted by early years teachers or reception teachers, if you don't mind, and they're mm. on dyslexia. Okay. Um, so this lady says, I'm a very experienced early years teacher, and I want to know from Jesse, is there evidence for practitioners claiming that dyslexia cannot be diagnosed until the age of seven, when as an early years teacher of 34 years practice, I can predict at four that a child will have dyslexia or dyslexic tendencies? I think that's a really interesting question. I guess a couple of things to say. So the first thing is to think very carefully about what dyslexia is. And I think there's not always a very good consensus around what dyslexia is. But to me, dyslexia is very much a a challenge, a need to do with literacy. Sometimes it's associated with other needs, true, but it's primarily a need related to literacy that can't be explained by lack of input or teaching. And I think that's really important. And it's maybe important for this position, because then what you might think is, okay, well, we need to make sure. So reading is something that has to be actively taught. It's not like spoken language in that respect. It doesn't kind of just seem to happen by osmosis. You know, it needs to be deliberately and actively taught. And for some children, quite a lot of explicit, well-structured teaching is needed, as as we know. And so there is a sense in which you want to make sure before you decide that a child has a reading need, you want to make sure that they've had adequate teaching. So that's why you might not decide before they've had access. So if they're just arriving at school at four, you might not want to give them a label because they haven't necessarily had any systematic teaching on reading at that point and so you'd want to give them some time and of course children do learn these things at different rates so you might want to give it a bit of time before you decide who has an unexplained or unexpected reading need and who doesn't. I wonder whether the seven seems quite long and I wonder whether that comes from the US context where children start learning to read much later or other contexts, because I think in the UK, your teacher, that's very appropriate to be thinking, well, you know, they're coming at four, they have lots of very high quality structured phonics and other instruction in reception. So, you know, within a year or so, we should be able to tell whether something doesn't seem to be quite working for them. And that's why we have the phonics screening check, of course, at the end of year one, because that's a really good checking point, because there's been some time for everything to bed in. So I slightly wonder whether this seven has come out of that it's about kind of waiting in the US there is quite a strong and there is an emphasis on this here as well a strong emphasis on kind of response to intervention approach which basically means you start with quality first teaching and only if a child doesn't respond to that quality first teaching do you decide that they need additional support and give them a label and then you try a kind of successive stages of more targeted or intensive support for them and then you kind of roll through the system and I wonder whether it comes from that kind of idea and again the the notion that that they start formal instruction a bit later in the US I'm, I'm not sure it'd be interesting to know yeah where that kind of age came from yeah in terms of sort of you've mentioned sort of screening I'm not sure if this is your area but if you were passing on tips to reception teachers or even in the early stages of secondary school or is there a particular screening tool that you would you know about you would recommend certainly for screening like conditions like dyslexia you know is there anything that is an absolute must have well not in our context given that we have the phonic screening check I mean that's the most important thing so you've given children an opportunity to learn the building bricks of reading and then you see have they managed to get to the 
to the kind of level we would hope that they would get to at the end of this. And I think that's a really useful tool. And we have that tool already here. And also, I mean, when we look at how well children do on the phonics screening check and look at what teachers say about how well they're doing and whether they have reading needs, those things are incredibly well aligned. So, you know, I think we already have a lot of information available to us. It might be that schools feel a need to have something a little bit earlier. There are some tools out there. I think there are challenges. One of the challenges is the one that I've already talked about, that we might want, not want to be really careful about labelling children before we've given them some opportunity to be in the school system and to get that instruction. Another challenge with screening tools is that they're never perfect. And so there is always the possibility that they will misidentify a child as having reading needs when they don't actually, they just haven't got there yet, say, or they have some other kind of need that's showing up on this particular test. They weren't paying attention, as I mentioned earlier. There's also always the risk that they will miss some children as well. So they're not perfect tools, but they can be very useful. But I would always recommend using them within the context of other things too, like teacher knowledge. And it sounds like your teacher is actually knows a lot about, you know, teachers do know a lot about their children. We know that. And so I think it's about triangulating different bits of information. In the secondary context, I did talk earlier about the new group reading test, and that can be quite useful. But the same caveats apply that I would always encourage, as I said earlier, approach of like then confirming that reading need using something that's like one to one. So screening tools are typically things that you can administer at scale. And so they do have certain drawbacks. And then just, you know, maybe they can be used as a way of identifying who you do some follow up assessments with, where you're more confident about what those assessments are telling you and about why children are performing in a certain way. And they can be quite sort of indicative, but placed in context of wider evidence or observation. Uh, We are doing some work in the US developing a screening tool, and it is really useful, but they don't have a phonic screening check, you see. That's why we're developing it there, because they haven't already got something in place that we know is pretty good and reliable. And Jesse, you've mentioned so many different projects that you're working on. So at this moment in time, this is March 2023, what's coming out that we can access or think about that you're really excited about maybe in the next sort of six months to a year? Yeah, I'm really excited. So the adolescent work is, I've now worked on two different projects, both longitudinal projects, but also using experimental designs as well. And from the second of those projects, we're just about to publish our public report with the Nuffield Foundation on that. And that's going to be really exciting. And the one thing I didn't talk about that might be interesting to listeners that we we looked at in that project is this idea of a transition slump. I don't know whether that's one that's familiar to you, but there seems to be quite a strong narrative that as children move from primary to secondary school, there's a kind of slump in their knowledge and skills in relation to reading and vocabulary and other things. And actually what we found is there is no slump. We found no evidence of a slump. But instead, perhaps what's going on is that there's a big shift in the, the challenge and what they need to do. So that's really interesting. I've also been working on a project called the Love to Read Project, which is just finishing up. And that's led by Sarah McGowan at, at Edinburgh. And we've been looking at a set of principles, as I think I mentioned earlier, around reading motivation. And that's been fascinating. We collaborated with children and teachers to develop this program. And there's going to be information about that out very soon. Um, We'll also be doing a public report with Nuffield and also that we're going to be publishing the program for that as well. We talked a bit about the Baby Books project too. So there's loads that's going on at the moment. And I think really the bottom line for me and the learning for me, because we're always learning, I think, as researchers, or we should be, is just how important it is to make sure that we are collaborating with 
children and young people, with families, with teachers, with other people, to make sure that we're asking the right questions in research and that also any findings that we have, we understand what they might mean for schools, but also might mean for families and parents, as we've been talking about today, how they translate. Absolutely. And we're, you know, tilled up, we're committed to sort of understanding and disseminating that research into sort of something that a parent could read or a teacher could use. So um, it's yes. fantastic, you know, hearing so much from you that of material that's really pertinent, you know, for educators or parents. Thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you so much. And we hope to stay in touch with all those brilliant projects and highlight them to our schools. Yeah, it's been really lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much, Kathy. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.